This is dedicated to anyone that's been knocked down, but not out. The ones that fell to their knees, but rose back up. The ones that scratched and clawed, but never let go. The ones willing to admit their faults, move past their failures, and improve every single day. I hope these conversations encourage you to think critically, make you laugh hysterically, inspire you profoundly, and remind you to practice gratitude daily. My name is Iman Hushman. Welcome to the conversation. Welcome to Awesome People. So I would like to begin by saying thank you so much for Shahzadeh uh, Reza Pahlavi and Crown Princess Yasmin Pahlavi for giving me this pleasure, giving me this honor, and giving me this opportunity to have a conversation with two uh, individuals that I have respected and admired for an incredibly long time and now get to have this Khodemuni conversation. Welcome to this incredible episode of Awesome People. Thank you, Imajan. Thank you so much. We're so happy to be here. Um, I would like to just begin considering that this episode is being filmed uh, right around Nowruz. Um, I would like to, first of all, say Pisha Pish, Eizu Mubarak. And as we are having Nowruz 1400 right around the corner, uh, I would love to know what the Pahlavi family is doing this Nowruz and how they're celebrating this uh, momentous day of the year. Uh, well, we've got our, um, uh, you know, it's a little bit of a Corona still, a Corona aid. Um, last year, kids, we weren't, it was right at during the lockdown, so we re really weren't even with our kids. Uh, this year, um, again, we're not going to be with Shahbanu, uh, but uh, hopefully uh, all the daughters and my immediate family, my brother, sister, those just close to us can can join and share the day with us. Um, it helps that it's on a Saturday and the weather's been gorgeous. It really feels like the first days of spring are coming. And um, yeah, usually it's more Shahbanu's uh, day for me. It's more like the day where we uh, enjoy her company and it's always at her house and full of uh, flowers and the smells of aid. Um, but sadly, because of Corona, these last two days, last year and this year, we won't be with her. Sure. Will you be responsible for making the Sabzi Pula Mahi this year, or is that going to be somebody else's responsibility? <laughs> well, I've been on diet for quite a while, so I guess I'll pass on that one this time. Hopefully, I'll the kitchen. It's very hard to cook and not to eat at the same time. <laughs> That's true. Do, do, you have a, do you have a very um, memorable... Um, memorable moment from from Noru's from back when you were Iran Shahzadeh? Yes, of course. Uh, <clears throat> it was um, perhaps the only occasion in one day of the year that the entire family would be together, uncles and cousins, and, you know, we would uh, celebrate uh, Noru's. Uh, but more uh, importantly, I think this time that the more quality time we were able to spend with family uh, in the week following Nowruz, which were basically like a holiday, that gave us a, a, a very unique time to, to really spend quality time with each other, with my parents, with my siblings, with their friends, with our friends, and of course, enjoying the festivities like the Bedar and all of that stuff uh, that um, reminds me of the memories we had uh, back in Iran. 
In the latter years, we used to travel to Kish Island for the Nauru's uh, holidays. And of course, uh, I, I loved being uh, by the sea. I always loved the sea. And of course, the beautiful island that uh, Kish was with all the scuba diving and everything else. So many, many, many memories indeed. You probably had your camera in full action, right? I know you're a huge aficionado of filming and photography. So I, I, I hope you have at least some nice eight millimeters or some great uh, images still with you uh, from those days. I have a lot of projects that are yet to be edited because I frankly didn't have enough time to focus on that aspect, being very busy all these <coughs> last months with everything that is ongoing, uh, politically speaking, with Iran and everything else. So. Right. Uh, as uh, on the artistic side, you cannot just switch off and say, oh, I'm going to be creative for the next two hours. As you know, you have to be in the right mood and everything. So that's been a little bit in the waiting. Uh, most of my uh, pictures that I posted on my uh, photographic uh, Instagram uh, account that many of my uh, compatriots uh, do follow and we exchange uh, uh, thoughts and messages and uh, they send me pictures from Iran, which have been posted this entire month. Uh, is found, uh, 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 which is really uh, a reminder of how beautiful our country is, and 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 how much our country potentially can be uh, a, a gold mine for tourism of all forms and kinds. And uh, and I think that if we really uh, take care of our environment uh, in more than uh, one way. Uh, Iran will be beautiful for the next generation as well as uh, appealing to anyone who wants to visit our country. Of course. Well, hopefully one day we will be able to celebrate Nowruz again in that beautiful land. I want to now transition to um, the close relationship that you have together as husband and wife. And um, I, I would love to kind of uh, have you take me to the day where one of you said to the other person, I love you. And the question is, who yeah. said it first? I think I did. <laughs> do, do you remember? Uh, yeah. I proposed to her, which was about, I think, a couple of months after we had first met. And we were in um, between France and Switzerland. Uh, this is 1985. And uh, we were on the lake. Uh, I was rowing in a simple, small rowboat. And she was sitting in there. And, you know, at that, at that point, I said, you know, I think you're the one. And... Uh, I don't remember exactly yeah, what the words I, I used. Yeah, that's something. Much it. Yeah, that you have. That you're serious and you really care for me, and this is not casual for you. And then I got really nervous <laughs> and scared. <laughs> what, what What did you say? Just <laughs> met. What did you say? Do you remember? I, I pretty. I don't think I said much. I was just like, kind of freaked out a little bit. I mean, he's uh, my family prior to me meeting him personally. Uh, obviously, had always been uh, very much monarchist. We always had his pictures and his family's pictures in my home. And then uh, when he would do his um, interviews or talks on either Iranian TV or any other uh, uh, media, we were always running to, to watch or listen. So I had that whole thing in my head uh, before ever meeting him. And then meeting him, and, and uh, I was still kind of getting used to all the stuff that came with him you know i think we really had to go to the middle of the lake in a canoe to be alone for 10 minutes because otherwise we were constantly always surrounded by my family or his family or security guards um there never was like you know time to just relax and and just 
ideas. So it was kind of scary. <laughs> that dating scene between Robin Williams in the movie Good Morning Vietnam when he's walking with right. his friend and the whole family is That's such a beautiful moment uh, to kind of reminisce on, especially because normally uh, in these situations of, of monarchy and royalty, they don't have this love affair, uh, the dating and this this romanticism. And so I'm so happy for the two of you that you were able to at least have that sense of normalcy of love and and just share this memory. So I appreciate you taking us back to that beautiful day on a on a on a canoe. And um, I, really what leads next to or leads after this part, uh, a little fast forward, of course, is the big wedding day. And um, I've been a part of over a thousand weddings doing what we do as an entertainment company. So when I thought about, you know, talking to you, I was like, man, I have to inc you know, include an element of weddings. And if both of you may recall, uh, Hasti and Arsalan's wedding at Fisher's Island, we were here together. And I still remember Shasta that you came a couple of times, requested Bandari music and Sandy. And, you know, like that was a great moment. That was back when I was DJing, actually. So I, I, I reminisce on those moments. So speaking of wedding, Yasmin um, Jaman, I would love to know, considering that every woman or every girl dreams to have a fairy tale wedding uh, and be have that princess outfit, you literally live that dream. And when you look back to your wedding day, what is the most memorable moment of your wedding day that you could share with us? Uh, well, just to give you some background, uh, it was uh, a pretty tense time. It was during the Iran-Iraq war. So we weren't really that much in a celebratory mood overall as a, as a family. And so, uh, you know, it really was a very small gathering of people. In fact, um, you know, we really only invited uh, the elders of, of the family and one or two cousins uh, because uh, we really felt that maybe, you know, that it wasn't the right time to have a big party and a celebration. It was about about 60, 65 yeah. people maybe. Yeah. And but I personally for me it was it was a it was now I look back upon it and it was an incredible day because I uh, for the first time uh, many of the many of his, his aunts and uncles it was the first time that I actually got to meet them. And um you know I I just was like so nervous about uh, how to greet them and how what they would think of me and all of that um, and of course they were all very lovely and I'm so happy that I entered the family as as young as I did because I got the chance to meet almost everyone except his father and so I a lot of many of those members of the family are, are now deceased and I have really fond memories of that night um, and it was just uh, I, I was just I, I don't know if it was princess-like but it was uh, very warm and uh, beautiful, really. We didn't take any, hardly any pictures because there was worry about anything getting out. Sure. Uh, memories are beautiful. So, so Shazaj, well, I mean, with, with the position that you were in, you, you know, inevitably had the choice of anybody that you could choose as a partner for life. And I would love for you to let me know what trait in particular uh, about your wife was it that you knew that she is the one for me and she's the one that I want to grow a family with? Well, I think the combination of being uh, smart and quite mature for her age and very unpretentious is the first aspect that says, well, 
interest confidence. Anyway, it, she, she came across as very natural, normal, down-to-earth, you know, uh, unimpressed by anything in particular, <laughs> <laughs> uh, which is the story you should tell about when we first met at the airport. Uh, uh, I made a bad impression. Not bad, but a funny impression. <laughs> Not on purpose, but when we met at the airport, I didn't realize I wasn't... I usually wear glasses, used to wear glasses, and I um, I was uh, unaware of all the people that were waiting uh, for me. It was all by chance that he had arrived at the airport same time as me. You had mutual friends that were yeah. picking us up at the same time yeah. from Dallas Airport. So mm. I was That's just, how we first met, at the airport. Right. Yeah, I was just um, getting my luggage and kind of strolling around and not realizing that he was waiting on me. and. Uh, just took my time, I think, <laughs> getting there. And honestly, until I got right up to his face, I didn't realize who was standing there. And then he took that as me being very nonchalant about the whole situation. And I was didn't seem nervous at all. Well, you know, I got nervous after I got this close, but I didn't know uh, what was happening from afar. So I think that started us off on a funny little note and um, which which made it made, made it unique exactly that was the point it was very yeah. unique and i said okay <laughs> i i i've i've noticed um in in the few occasions that we've hung out in in, in person um there's a true love and respect between the two of you and also a there's like a youthfulness between the two of you, you know, like literally just teenagers in love and just kind of like being fun and, and themselves around each other. And um, I, I actually am a product of my parents having been married for 60 years, knock on wood, and 50 year, 56 years together as a married couple. And recently I did the Hushman episode, Unfiltered, and where I asked them, you know, very personal questions about everything. And I asked them what they believe are the keys to a happy marriage you know and they gave their answers before i share what they said i would love for you to share with me what you believe based on what has worked for you uh what are one or two keys to marriage a happy marriage excuse me i i think first of all it's um it's sort of uh i don't like it when people really build up their relationships as being something so perfect and you know the word happy is you know very uh subjective true and, um so i i really i first of all maybe it's a little bit superstitious too i just don't know if we necessarily uh, you know are the shining example of everything out there that people should be impressed by but i think one of the reasons we've lasted this long is because um i really really respect him i just really have never known anyone with so much integrity, anyone who's so honest, who's so himself, he's he's just, he has no guile. He, he's just such a, in my opinion, such a, such a, uh, has such a beautiful heart and soul. And um, everything is so sincere and genuine about him. And so that lasts, you know, that feeling probably lasts longer than that, euphoria of love and lust and uh you know the, the crushing on someone and you know all that stuff so i think the number one uh cause of i think our uh, getting along the way we do is i really like him as a person and um i don't want to put my head next to anyone else 
Uh, I don't want anyone else's head next to my pillow than his. You know, I, I just trust him implicitly. I love that. Shazada, could you also give your take? Well, it's obviously reciprocal. And the word trust is fundamental here because, you know, there's very, very few instances in life that you could say who it is that I can unquestionably trust and be a pillar and be uh, as we say, we, we support each other and we're there uh, for each other, even if there was nobody else in the world who would hold our hand. And that, that makes it a very special, unique, uh, irreplaceable uh, relationship that you can't have with any other human being except for your spouse. And uh, of course, uh, as the years goes by, um, it becomes deeper, that sense of the intimacy, that sense of uh, acceptance of many things that sometimes you have frictions or disagreements or different tastes, but that's okay. I mean, we, uh, we uh, to use that famous cliche line, we complete each other, you complete me. <laughs> and, uh, and so, that's uh, true, I mean, uh, I would be so lonely without her. I genuinely believe that. That's that's incredible. And actually, that um, and by the way, my parents basically said, my mom, love and commonality. They're like, as long as you love that person of, as who they are and you have things in common, then you can fight through everything, even through the ups and downs. Because my parents also dealt with families not getting together along or just the challenges of immigrant life. But it was that love that they had for each other, respect that they had for each other, and that they just had things that they could always talk about at the end of the night and not having anything short of talking about. So, so let, let me kind of just go inside of like the, the household and ask you a few little uh, newlywed question games. I know you're about to celebrate 35 years of marriage, but just to kind of get to know you a little more as husband and wife and parents, uh, who is the tidier uh, between the two of you? All right. She agrees. Okay. Who's the best? But she has more of an obsession to... OCD-ish? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> who, who's, the, who's the better cook? He is, for sure. I don't know how to cook at all. <laughs> well, then there we go. My, my, my children are impressed when I grill the hot dog. They think I do a great hot dog, and that's, that's very weird, but probably is the only thing I know how to cook is I'll cut it and make it crispy. So they think that I'm all that. So the bar is very low for my cooking. What, what is the best dish that Shahzad makes that you look forward to? He, love, he has this beautiful um, tuna that he makes with a, uh, a uh, wasabi um, mashed potato and this yummy glaze. Oh, wow. Um, and he just cooks the, cooks the fish perfectly. I love it. Do you have a favorite dish to cook, Shazadeh? Well, I mean, honestly, it depends uh, on where you are, what season it is, what the product that you find that day freshest in the market, maybe. I mean, it could be a, a rack of lamb, it could be scallops, it could be a nice piece of uh, fish. God knows. I mean, if, if you happen to have the right ingredient at the right time and you get inspired by what to cook that particular moment, that's what I go by. I don't open a recipe book and say, okay, today I'm going to do lasagna or I don't know, whatever. If I see something in the market that I like, I buy it, and I say, that's what we're going to have tonight. And oh, by the way, this vegetable as opposed to this one, and that's how it goes. The sort of the spontaneous creativity is what I like to do. And I get a lot of ideas going to restaurants and trying to do a little bit of a fusion style, mm -hmm. a little bit of the East, a little bit of the West. And That reminds me, when the girls were younger, um, the, one, the two older ones that don't live with us anymore, we used to have... Uh, 
uh, family cooking night and mostly on Wednesday nights. And, um, and that usually entailed me sitting at the kitchen counter, drinking a glass of wine while, while he would be cooking with his daughters and making a huge mess. Living the but, life. See, the concern is only the mess. No, the I enjoyed part. it. I enjoyed it. I'm just saying there's like, it's like a, a, the tornado and it's the kitchen. But but I, I definitely remember those nights where I'd be absolutely useless. And they were, uh, they, they would do a great job. Well, first of all, any any good cook will tell you that there's absolutely no way you can cook a nice dish without using a lot of utensils. <laughs> 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 you cannot do it otherwise. So when you do the labor, it's okay. Somebody has to do the, has the cooking, but I'm not doing the washing. <laughs> I'm not doing the washing. I, I, I can tell you definitely have a very creative side to you when it comes to the to the kitchen and arts and photography and stuff. You you mentioned your daughter's helping you out in the kitchen. Uh, so for those who don't know, you have three daughters. Who is tougher on the girls? Me. No, I'm the t- I'm I'm the bad. She's bad the bad cop and the good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think it's mostly because I'm I'm much more. Um, uh, I, I have just more expectations, I guess, and so they they usually have an easy time with him. But ninety nine percent of the time, I stand firmly together with my wife, do. so they cannot divide us. That's yeah. that has been our cardinal principle. That's true. What, uh, what What is one advice that you would have for uh, anybody that's uh, raising a teenager? Because I believe Farah is 17 years old right now, correct? So she's still in the teenagers. And, you know, it's, it's the, I believe it's a very tough time to be growing up uh, in this day and age, especially with social media. Is there is there a, a word of advice that you have for, for raising um, a teenager? Well, my philosophy has been that, um, you know, I try to just be very aware of her in terms of what's going on because they're not very talkative when they're teenagers. I mean, now thankfully she's at the tail end of it and she's getting back to her normal self, sweet self. But there were a couple of years there where she was really not interested in too much talking and she was mostly in her room and all that. But I think as parents, we just have to sort of be around because when you're, when you're around, um, you never know when they will feel like sharing something with you. So it's kind of like, the more occasions you have to sort of um, have maybe have a meal together or be in a car with each other or just sit around, it's it, it sort of comes out of nowhere. So I feel bad for parents who have a very, very busy schedule because sometimes that does cause, uh, cause you to lose track of your teenager because teenagers really aren't very predictable in when and where they want to share something, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and especially in this day and age of uh, iPhones and iPads and social media, uh, yeah, it has its it has its benefits in terms of information that they can have access to. But at the same time, it makes uh, uh, the, the socializing very uh, very limited. So uh, seldom do you have that moment, as my wife was just saying, of uh, the urge to communicate something that is more than just a casual comment. And so we have to take advantage of, of that moment as much as possible. Otherwise, it will just pass in. Your bonding, his bonding time with uh, Farah and Iman, uh, Noor is not so much into football, was definitely football and the Cowboys. Oh, wow. <laughs> Cowboys. I did not know that. Washington fans. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, I'm a 49er fan, and I haven't managed to recruit any of my children to my side of the of the aisle. So, but football is a big uh, fun thing we all do together. Watch yes. it. That's good. And you make the hot dogs on football Sunday, I assume, right? <laughs> hot dogs are usually just, I don't know, when I'm desperate and there's no food in the house. That's true. <laughs> I have no backup plan. Yeah, but no, we, we do enjoy family time on Sundays, that's for sure. Beautiful. So to, to wrap up the, the family aspect of this conversation, Shaza, the, your, your, your overall thought of uh, growing up or raising a family with three uh, daughters and, and your wife. How was it growing up with four women in the household? Uh, well, obviously, you feel like the absolute minority. It's not just four women, it's women and their friends. Uh, you know, it exponentially increases. You yeah. walk into a room and like people talking at the same time about six different subjects and somehow they understand every single story. I have a hard time following just one story. <laughs> one time at the same time. And I'm amazed that I need my testosterone shot and somebody comes to my rescue. It's the only man in the house. But it has its advantages too because whenever there's an issue, uh, I'm the go-to guy. So I feel like I'm not totally useless to that. Uh, <laughs> that. Yes, you are. You're very valuable. When he's not, when he's traveling, the whole house falls apart because he fixes it. <laughs> That's he's hilarious. Most of us have never attempted to learn how to fix anything because he's always there to do it for us. So we're a bit spoiled. That's beautiful. I mean, it, it seemed like a very interesting dynamic in the household. But when I was asking some friends of what to ask, and I mentioned that I want to definitely ask about the dynamic of having three daughters, um, he said, you should ask him, how does he manage to have hot water for a shower at the end of, like, everybody else you know, getting the showers? That was pretty Actually, funny. Actually, I didn't have to take a cold shower in the other day. It happened. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so, so... Um, on the topic of females and women, in 2018, you know, you were very open about your battle with cancer. And um, I, first of all, I admire your, your openness for it because I know that you immediately turned it into an opportunity to be able to educate and, and raise awareness. And I would love for you to touch on that experience. And I know how you believe that, uh, you know, there's cancer so taboo, especially amongst Persians and Persian women. So if you could please touch on uh, that experience and, and what you would hope to uh, accomplish by sharing more of your story? Um, yeah, I, I definitely um, felt uh, that there was an opportunity uh, after I got diagnosed to share my uh, experiences, uh, mainly because I quickly realized how little uh, I knew about the disease and the process and the treatment. And also I realized that um, Maybe, you know, people, women in Iran uh, are even in, in worse shape than me as far as uh, knowledge uh, and experience shared between each other about the, the process of cancer treatment and just surviving cancer emotionally and physically. So uh, really, that was a that sort of was a spark in my mind to enter the uh, social media jungle. And that's when I started my uh, my Instagram. And. I just uh, used it as a way to feel closer to women inside my country. I felt like it was a shared experience that it's so common among women and some men. It's a very common disease, but it's also so very treatable. The more knowledge you have about it and the more 
uh, the less um, shame and fear to discuss things, um, the less people will die from this because it is something that it's very time sensitive. It's if you feel something, if you, if you feel a difference in your body, you know, you shouldn't fear the, the worst that you should, you should welcome going to the doctor because the sooner you go, the, the, the more likely it is that you will make a full recovery. And the experiences that I've heard, I, I've heard from women since I've shared my experiences that many were afraid. Uh, they would, they had felt something, but they were just so afraid of, of the consequences. And they thought it was like a death sentence or they were ashamed because they were something defective about them or they were afraid that they would be judged by society, that they had a defect or their daughters would have a defect and so that people wouldn't marry them. Things, things that are just very strange to me here, but like I realized those are the thoughts that especially people in the Middle East have. They, there's a lot of superstition around cancer. So really it started like that. And then I realized, um, wow, this is so wonderful because, you know, it's, we all learn from each other. I've learned from women sharing with me and I hope people have learned from me and my experience. We, I made a lot of mistakes just out of ignorance, even though I, I was raised in a country where there's a lot of uh, campaigns for breast cancer awareness. I still uh, didn't fully know what questions to ask my doctors and stuff. So I just, I, I took the opportunity and I'm, I'm glad I did. I mean, I was never embarrassed about it. So. Um, thank you for sharing that. Shaza, can, can you kind of um, share your experience from this when, when you first found out about it and uh, from, from a male and husband, Iranian husband standpoint, um, you know, what, what did you feel like your role was to, to support your wife during this truly challenging time? Well, first of all, there's no taboo subject or intimidating subjects that my wife and I would, would not be talking about, uh, including uh, all these aspects. And I must say uh, to the point that uh, her self-diagnosis was the reason why she probably saved her own life. Um, just having a mammogram is not enough uh, to pass uh, with a negative uh, detection, uh, thinking that you're totally okay, because in fact, two, two weeks after she had her last mammogram, she felt uh, this little lump in her breast and she told me, hey, you know, this is sort of odd and wasn't there before. And I said, I don't know, it could be maybe some kind of a cyst or something like that, but better check with the doctor, you never know. And it was not until the, autopsy, the uh, biopsy was done that they saw that it is uh, cancerous and it was fortunately in the very early stage, stage 1A as they call it. So... It was the kind that obviously would not uh, spread in the sense that you would need uh, chemotherapy or radiation following that, which would have been so difficult for her to have to endure even after opting to have a double mastectomy. But anyway, all of these aspects that we talked about uh, is something that is an example of when men in the family also are aware of what's going on. And a woman, whether it's a sister or a mother or, or, or a daughter, talks about it they need to have uh, the full support of the entire family from both sexes. And that's a culture that to be recreated in a country where these issues are taboo, especially if you're talking about a part of your body, which is a big no-no. Right. And uh, at least in our cultures, whereas you have to tackle the problem, have an open mind about it. And uh, hopefully this, this uh, modernity of thinking and behavior is something that will uh, at the end, only helps our society not to shy away from it. 
similar subjects we talk about. For instance, we talk about the LGBTQ community in Iran and people who send me messages that are, for instance, transsexual or they have other issues and they're so alone and they don't have any support and all of these issues that need to be understood from every aspect, uh, psychologically, so medically, shine a light on it. You know, if we started from ourselves and hopefully we'll try to, to spread this kind of uh, attitude as opposed to, uh, you know, uh, frowning at quote-unquote defects. So but he thing. also is, is quite, I think there's some husbands that maybe wouldn't have taken it in such stride. Like I've heard from a lot of women who, uh, you know, after having a double mastectomy, have their relationships have deteriorated. The man doesn't know how to handle the situation. Right. Doesn't, how to handle the disfigurement can't whereas um he like just dove right into the whole situation he was the one who was the emptying my uh those drip things that they had put on me after surgery he drains. Was, drains he was the one who was cleaning my bandages making sure i take my medication and also i think the, the nicest thing that he did for me, which I think came totally naturally, I don't think he even realized, was that he never changed the way he looked at me after I changed, after my body looked different. Um, he he looked at me as he had always looked at me, you know, with love and affection. And so I was lucky, and I really hope that the men out there realize that all women really want is for you not to think of them as having um, been, been changed so fundamentally, to just try to remember them as they as their soul not what their breasts look like that was beautifully stated um you know, some things that we just talked about is basically how us Persians we've uh, as a family for generations have swept things under our Persian rugs uh you know and and not discuss things openly and um, one other topic that um, families have not talked about in more detail is mental health in general. And, you know, your, your family has not had any shortage of uh, tragedies as it relates to suicide as well. And, um, you know, depression and anxiety uh, are, are things that no matter where you're from, uh, every human being goes through it, you know, and yet still Persians are still very behind in being able to communicate and reach out to get the help that they need. And based on your experience, especially Shahzadeh, um, what, what advice can you give to uh, Persian families to ensure that they don't ever lose a, a loved one um, when, when they're battling through uh, these, these, these storms? on their own. So if you have any advice that you can give with regards to mental health, I would greatly appreciate that. Oh, well, I mean, look, uh, I still don't know if you talk to a psychiatrist or a specialist of how depression can be resolved. Uh, I think it's one of those deals that no matter how much support you want to put around that person, whether it's voluntary or involuntary uh, uh, to an institution to take care of it, uh, if, if that individual doesn't want to reach for the rope you throw to them or is in total denial, it doesn't matter what you try to do. And it's very, it's a very, very lonely problem. Uh, I noticed that both in the, my siblings who ultimately succumbed to it by committing suicide. But it's not that we were not around them. It's not that we didn't try to address it. It's not that we didn't try to suggest some thoughts to them. It's just that at the end, they have to be able to come up with the, with their own motivation to to deal with the problem. I don't know what kind of 
factors that surround an individual contributes to their sense of abandonment or hopelessness, whatever it is that, that ultimately pushes them over the precipice. Because uh, I can understand cases where people are completely alone. They have no friends, they have no relatives, they don't have a place to live in, they are in a dire economic situation. But what about people who are well surrounded, don't have any such problems, and still they are depressed, and they still end up committing suicide? I don't really know what a special think, answer is to that. I think, the, um, I think the thing that probably he doesn't want to talk about is that I think the impact uh, of the revolution... Uh, watching um, their father uh, be hospitalized and hearing the uh, angry mobs outside of his hospital room in New York, having to be uh, dis dislocated from one place to the next, not feeling safe, feeling like everyone had abandoned you and your family, seeing your uh, parents in such distress being displaced the way everybody was. I think Iris and Leila were both at a very sensitive age, uh, more so than maybe Reza and Farhanaz. Uh, but I think all the children were, based on my conversations and my seeing my in-laws, um, there was such a deep trauma from all of it. And I think because everybody was traumatized, there was a situation where probably people couldn't help each other. It's, you know, you have to put the oxygen mask on for yourself first before you can put it on the child. And I think the trauma was all around uh, for everyone and everybody was just trying to survive. And I think the sad truth of it is, is that um, despite a lot of attempts to try to bring back Leila and bring back Ayrza, to a place where they could see some positives in their lives, they were in a dark place. And I think it was a long journey from those first days of the revolution. Looking back, are there any warning signs that you think that um, were there that unfortunately were overlooked looking back? But I don't think you can replicate the story of what we had to go through. It's rather unique and it happens so few times in, in history to be right. such a traumatic uh, set of circumstances and, and, and what happens. So I don't know if you could say it's like catching a cold and what, how you treat a cold once you get one. Um, uh, all I can say is that for what it's worth as a particular story of circumstance, uh, when you think of how the medical doctors deal with uh, people who suffer from uh, PTSD, for instance, uh, uh, what are the basic uh, uh, guidelines as to how to cope with it or how to prepare yourself uh, if, should it reoccur in some form or shape in, on other occasions in the future. Mm, I, I, I would say that, again, the more there is discussion on the matter, the more there is uh, a sense of it could happen to anyone at any time. Uh, it will help people be at least not uh, shocked if it were to occur, they would be better prepared should it occur, and I hope it doesn't for anyone, but uh, we can't, you cannot say <laughs> never uh, it could happen, but to be more ready. And uh, again, I think uh, uh, 
the more society talks about these matters, the more you feel like you're not isolated, you're not alone, you're not in prison. Everybody yeah. understands support. it. Everybody can empathize or sympathize or offer yeah. support. Back then, maybe there wasn't as much conversation. No. There was really very... There, I think things have improved so much in mental health awareness, uh, at least in this that I do think that back in that time when Leila was not feeling right, um, there was less uh, information available, still kind of a taboo about mental health issues. And uh, I think that hopefully that has changed a lot. So young people do have uh, a better understanding of, you know, how this is something that happens to a lot of people and that there's support out there that they should ask for help, you know, before they- And, of, and of course, I must uh, just say in the case of my sister, it started more with an eating disorder, but then it also led to depression and one right. impacted the other. So while you were trying to get better on one side, the other side will kick in and vice versa. So she could never get out of this sort of uh, perfect storm of two yeah. things at the same time, which compounded the problem and made it far more difficult for her to most importantly try to save herself and for those of us trying to, to be of help. So that's also another thing that could be uh, studied as to a, a double whammy type uh, scenario of uh, not just one thing that is purely uh, eating disorder or purely uh, a mental issue, but a combination of both, which uh, exacerbates the problem. Absolutely. I'm sure there's definitely a compound effect of multiple things that kind of uh, come together to create this perfect storm. What, what do you think, uh, if you don't mind, just one last question about this topic is what differentiated you and how you because you, you obviously experienced the same tragedy, same, uh, um, you know, in, uh, incredible experiences of, of hardship. What what kept you strong? What kept you level headed? What did, is there something that you did to um, keep yourself positive and and fight through this? Do you have something that kind of um, kept you going? Yeah, I think the simple answer is to have a sense of purpose and a focus on something to do. Uh, it was not until at least a month after my father passed away that it finally sunk on me and my mother. Oh, she lost her husband and I lost her father. Mm -hmm. We immediately propelled into, okay, what are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to say? What are people going to expect? And then since then, and of course, the whole country and of course the war and so many other aspects just dragged me straight into uh, a scenario that is now almost 40 years and counting of doing everything uh, I can. Uh, to help uh, save Iran. So I did have uh, a sense of a mission and purpose, if you could call it that. So maybe all of that kept me focused on something, not to be dragged into uh, yeah, uh, things that maybe my siblings did, did not immediately uh, sense, that right. too busy thinking of something and, and, and getting dragged into that negative aspect of falling into depression or what have you. And I must say also that Regretfully, and not because it was intentional, in the early years, uh, maybe, and I'm not saying it would have resolved the problem, but as the older brother and as the only, the, 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 I can say, the, the male in the family with uh, my father not being there and my mother having so many issues on her back, um, perhaps uh, the fact that we were not together because we were all scattered. Um, I lived three years in Morocco, a year after my father passed away. My siblings were by then living in the United States. Uh, we were not as a family under the same roof. 
Uh, in fact, I don't think we ever have been in a scenario where we're all un un under the same roof. So maybe that vacuum was something that could have given there uh, a little bit more uh, of um, at least, uh, uh, as we say, for or something to lean on. Um, maybe it could have made a difference. We did communicate, but it's not enough. It's different than we're talking over the phone as opposed to being in the same room and uh, uh, hugging each other if somebody doesn't sleep that night and they had a nightmare or they're crying and they're upset and they want to simply have a, you know, a, a, cry, a shoulder to cry on. But also you have to, I mean, he was also very young. So you were 17, 18 when everything was happening. And I don't think you should consider, I mean, I really don't think you had any options. People pushed you in the direction that you were in. And I think the family aspect and, and sort of what we were started with earlier when we were talking about how do you deal with a teenager? You know, as I said, you have to be there. You have to be aware uh, because things happen and, and if you, they may not speak about it, but you should, if you're there, you can see it, you can feel it. Right. And in this circumstance, um, both my husband and my mother-in-law were unfortunately dragged into a whole other uh, situation where it was just a matter of survival. So everybody suffered. There's also a distinct change uh, between generations because, you know, when you look at our parents' generation, the culture of not saying things as opposed to be open about things is totally different. Mm -hmm. um, uh, in our family, we don't shy away from bringing any subject up because we think talking about it is better than ignoring it or pretending it's not there. It's, I think it's a generational thing. I know a lot of Iranians, younger generation will probably agree with me on that, that uh, there are things that today they talk among themselves or if they have children with their children that they would never have th that kind of conversation with their parents. So maybe generationally, there's also a change there. So we try not to do uh, that that our parents' generation did. On the contrary, we like to be open so no stone is left unturned, so to speak. Well, I mean, it's definitely great that the new generation is starting to open up more. And I think that just hearing these words coming from both of you and seeing how you are very open about talking these things and open to have these um, honest and vulnerable discussions within your family will hopefully lead to a little spark in other families, especially Persians, to do the same thing because I, I wholeheartedly believe that through conversations, we can save people from depression, from, from taking their own lives. Um, you know, just being there for each other, empathy, sympathy, and just, you know, showing them love and support, uh, those all go a long way. So I greatly appreciate it. These are really key words because I think one of the issues that I would say particularly in our Farhangi Iruni is still there from parents is that you can do the best you can as a parent to help your children be equipped with the kind of education and knowledge so they can fend better for themselves down in life. You cannot live their lives for them. Yeah. As parents, we have to understand that at some point, our children will have to stand on their own feet. We cannot be there every time there is trouble. Uh, they have to be independent. They have to be able to depend on themselves. We cannot live their lives for them. That's so important. And this is part of our way of thinking as a traditional society to a more modern one. I think this is one of the very key aspects that could make a huge difference. They're just not equipped that way. I mean, our yeah. my parents definitely were not equipped for that level of uh, discussion and thinking. They, they, they wanted... They were they were aware if I was doing well or not doing well, but yeah. as far as having the 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 
vocabulary and uh, you know it's just it just wasn't it wasn't uh, available to them. Remember what I said earlier about living your life according to your own expectations not of others. Again another I think negative traits in our culture is that uh, we are worried about perception what yeah. other people think. Mardom chimiga. Right. Yes. What's important what is uh, what you believe. Well, that's what I'm saying. That's yeah. part of the problem. It's always based on other people's expectation. Yeah. And I think that's adding insult to injury because you're not giving them a sense of confidence. You're giving them a sense that they have to always fear to be judged. And that's not a way to form character. Uh, no, beautifully said. And I actually saw a little thing a couple of days ago where you shouldn't tell somebody that I'm proud of you. You should tell them, aren't you proud of yourself? You know, so that way they learn to kind of just you know, accept that they don't need to uh, validation from anybody else, essentially, you know, so that's um, all, all great stuff. I mean, I feel like we could go hours talking about these kind of things. And I hope that this conversation as it pertains to mental health uh, will hopefully, uh, again, spark some conversations amongst other families. Uh, speaking of families, the, the last component that I would love to take up your time on is the trip that Balaza took to Greece uh, with regards to uh, the refugees and how there was a beautiful documentary that was created by Iran International. I, I highly recommend anybody to YouTube it, The Voiceless Refugees, um, wonderfully done. Would you mind just kind of speaking to me uh, about how that affected you and what stood out and what you're hoping to uh, do now to help with the situation that many of those Iranians are facing? Um, yeah, I, I think what uh, the, the the reason that we did the uh, documentary uh, and we did it very, uh, you know, what you see is really what happened. And there was very little, you know, production uh, aspect to it. Um, we we really wanted to shed light on on this problem. We really didn't know. I didn't know what I was going to see. And I didn't ex I didn't know what to expect going on this trip. And um, it was, uh, it turned out, as I've said so many times, that to have been one of the best experiences of my life, even though it was so extremely sad, it was also very, very uplifting in very strange ways. And the humanity uh, and the connections I made there and the stories that were shared with me, the trust that was put in me, I, I just, um, I, I can't say enough, there are not words for it, but Really, the documentary was made mainly because these people are suffering. Um, Iranian refugees especially are suffering because they aren't really considered a, a, a category that's really uh, at the top of any international organization's list because they don't consider them refugees of war. They consider them economic refugees. Mm -hmm. And so they don't have as much access to things as, let's say, for Syrian refugees or Afghani refugees or, you know, but in fact, when you listen to the, the, the stories of these Iranian refugees, you realize what they went through is, is, is the same, if not worse than war. They, they were running from, for their lives, many of them. They were um, under uh, abusive situations. They're, um, they were jailed for things that were uh, trumped up charges or uh, young people's families were threatened for things that they had done. Um, and um, a lot of female, a lot of the women that I spoke to were victims of rape and other uh, abuse, physical abuse, and um, with no protection from uh, society and the law uh, as it is currently in Iran. So 
really that was um, that was the aim of the documentary. What's what was great that happened was as a result there was an outpouring of, of uh, uh, interest, and we were able to help them uh, create a community center in Athens for refugees, especially Iranian refugees, where they could have access to a lot of different things. The, the Café Pato? Yeah, Café Pato, um, created by a refugee, Arash, a very, very lovely person who uh, has his papers and could be off doing his own thing, but has chosen to stay in uh, Athens mostly and to uh, basically continue to help his fellow refugees. And so, Really, it's been wonderful to be able to do that, and I hope to be able to continue supporting uh, the expenses and, and things for that community center and help other refugees in Lesbos. But um, that can only happen if people continue to care. And uh, we do have a GoFundMe, and I hope that every time I do one of these interviews, really the only reason I do it is because it's a chance to talk about the refugees and maybe a few people will be generous and help us continue to help them. Where is the best place that they can go to find out more so that you can grow your team of people that can make an impact? Yeah, we have um, we have a, a in the bio of my Instagram, yasmin.padlavi. Uh, in the bio, there's a link to the Refugees GoFundMe page. And it's through an organization called Persian American Women's Conference. Right. They have helped us because we wanted to make sure we do everything according to U.S. laws and U.S. accounting and regulations. So everything has been documented, every expense, every 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 dollar that people have donated has gone directly to the refugees, um, albeit in, in increments because we're paying rent and we're helping them with um, some of the programs they have, some um, meal programs they have for refugees. It's been very difficult with Corona. So they've been making little bags of food and leaving it outside for pickup. So, and, and the kids, uh, there's programs for the, for the young kids who are there. Some 30% of these 13,000 refugees are kids. So they suffer a lot. Um, so that's really all. If they go to my Instagram and to the bio, they will see it. And every dollar really counts. The, the, the last two parts of this uh, wonderful conversation we're having is one on a personal note, uh, Shazadeh, as, as somebody who's been in the entertainment industry for 23, 24 years and somebody who could see the joy that you have when you play the drums and how yeah. uh, in, the, in the presence of Shaheen and Natalie's home uh, and during those incredible jam sessions that I had the privilege of being around with Farmaz Asani and Marjan and uh when, when I see you performing and seeing how you're like in your happy place over there, I wanted to ask you that if you had the choice to be the lead drummer of any band in history and perform on any stage that has ever been built and to have that concert benefit something that is the most meaningful to you, what uh, band would it be? What stage would it be? And what would be the mission or the purpose behind that? Uh, concert. It's very tough for me to have to pick one of the, the two of my favorite bands from that, that sense because I love Santana and I love Pink Floyd. Oh wow! Okay. But, well, one, one of them can open. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, in a sheer performance standpoint, I would probably have to say Pink Floyd. Yeah, I knew it. And also, your cause would be the oceans. 
right? You're such an environmentalist. Maybe that well, actually, you know, thinking of the refugees, perhaps uh, we could come together with a bunch of our fellow ah. Iranian musicians and have a concert dedicated to raising funds for refugees. I'll be happy to jam along as a drummer. That would be great. Look I mean, that. I, my friend, my friend, I think that we now have something to do after we get off this. Uh, this, this, this genuinely, and I'm having Shaheen actually uh, perform at the live stream as well. And so I'm, I'll get back to you. I got this. I, let, <laughs> let, let me have the honor of helping produce this in however way that you have it envisioned. It will be the greatest honor of my life. I can tell you that much. Um, you saw Arash Labafa. He came with me. Yes. And I think music really brings so much joy to everybody. Yes. And you could see in the in the in the documentary how much uh, yes. how happy the kids were dancing along to him. He really, really absolutely uh, a great gift. Absolutely, absolutely. So on the subject of music and joy, I think it's a perfect opportunity for us to focus on what exactly is the antithesis to a regime of darkness that has celebrated martyrdom and forcing people to cry over dead soldiers during the war or what have you, constantly flagellating uh, themselves into negativity. We are a culture that celebrates life. Nowruz is about new life. And it is very apropos to remind ourselves that the best antidote to a regime that constantly wants you, first of all, not to think for yourself, and then wants you to lament every day, to fight them with joy, with celebration, with music, with happiness, with a smile on our face, despite all the difficulties, because that's the only thing that will keep us alive, that will only thing that will keep us being positive and think about positivities and put aside negativities. Let light triumph over darkness. I mean, I, you have no idea that like, the things that you're saying right now is speaking so deeply to me because one of my, the only thing that keeps me driving every single day is that if you recall, there was Live Aid back in 1983 at four at Wimbledon for HIV and Queens. Well, it's, Queen, it's, Queen, uh, Bob Gildoff did with the whole uh, cast of characters. Yeah. I watched, uh, so, so, uh, in a row. Absolutely. And, and and Queen's performance is, in my opinion, the greatest live performance of all time uh, with Freddie Mercury there. And I've, I've been saying myself for years that if I could have something that I can leave this earth on is to produce this incredible uh, experience musically that will bring people together for a cause that everybody just wants to be a part of. And last night, actually... Um, which I believe you're friends with him too, Andy Madadian, our, our great pop star from uh, from California. I was having a very nice conversation with him yesterday because he's graciously also being a part of the live stream. And, you know, he was Dar Dedeling, you know, and his Dar Dedel was the fact that, you know, the Iran, inside of Iran is investing so much money into music and the films, really to sidegarm the people, you know, yet all of our best talents outside of Iran, whether they're singers or musicians or songwriters, the technicians, everybody that, but Juna Del is creating, trying to create music, they, they, they don't have the opportunity because there is no financial resource. And I have no doubt that if we all come together for this kind of cause, everybody can win. We can spread so much beauty and 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 happiness and joy and so uh, my wheels are already turning in being able to create something special and so i appreciate you even planting that seed i'm going to grow it and i'm going to make sure that it's the most beautiful garden with you jamming to it <laughs> all right cool and um and so on on a closing note 
Um, if, if you would like to go ahead and have the virtual stage to give a notice greeting to your compatriots around the world, um, I will be quiet and let you say whatever message you'd like for Noruz 1400. Well, you're the, you're the person that knows how to give message as well. <laughs> I personally just hope that there's, there's uh, more freedom in the new year, that uh, there's less suffering, that Corona uh, will be something of the past, hopefully soon. But um, I just, I just wish everybody a beautiful new year and at least one day where they can put their um, sadnesses and their challenges and the difficulties they face in Iran aside and really enjoy uh, spring and the rebirth. Um, uh, together with their families. I think my message is the most simple message possible, which is unity, one voice, because divided we will fall. We can stand together. And this is a time where the country needs to know that every single Iranian that wants to fight for his freedom and liberty are standing together and they're not alone. And we need to voice that out. We have to show that beyond just what we think and put it into action. And I think this is perhaps the opportunity entering a new century in our calendar of looking about making a difference. Each and every one of us together, we will make the difference. I have no doubt about that. When there's a will, there's a way, and that will has to now be created. It's upon each and every one of us to, first of all, find that determination in ourselves and when you have determination, you find motivation, and with motivation comes everything else. So I hope that this is a Nooruz of motivation and hope to finally triumph over darkness and put aside all evils and start our century in a country back on track with liberty and happiness and belonging for everyone with no discrimination whatsoever of any kind. Thank you to both for those incredible words. And you mentioned, you know, divided we fall. This is actually why about two years ago when I started the production company, I called it Unite and Conquer because I know that together we can do so much more and we want to conquer all the great things in life, which is the love, which is the unity, which is the growth, which is family, all these amazing things. And we can only do that when we work hand in hand. So I, I greatly appreciate the uh, words of encouragement, the positivity, and hopefully this is truly a year for all Persians, Iranians around the world to, to um, be happy, be healthy, and uh, live a more joyful and peaceful life. Well, you know, as we say in Farsi, Piruz, but Piruz means victory after all. Yeah. I was always figuring, oh, what's the Piruz all about? <laughs> <laughs> that better is make true. serious this yeah. time. Let's bring victory. Let's do it. This is this is the year. Yeah. Let, let's make it a victorious century ahead for, for all persons, all generations. I, I cannot thank you enough for this incredible opportunity. I hope that uh, I didn't bore you with uh, basic questions. Uh, it was very, very entertaining for me, at least. And hopefully our viewers would enjoy it and let it catapult them to an incredible year with love and light. And if you give me the honor, I would love to invite my mother, Mayina Ushman, my father, Paiviza Ushman, and my sister, Sogole Afshar Javan, who just wanted to say hi. And they also have little... Um, memories with your family. And so these are the ones that if you give me permission, I would love to have them come say hi real quick. We just have to move this camera. And and I just realized that they can't hear them. So I have to kind of translate, right, but they yes. can hear them. So 
I'm going to have my mom on my left real quick. My they can't hear us. They, they can hear, but I have to translate. Unfortunately, the ear the earpiece is in my ear. Okay. Unless Brandon can figure it out. Ready? They can definitely hear you. And here comes my father. I can let's go in Pirano Five Other in. Uh, uh, so, in uh, so, 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 سلطنتی بودم همیشه و پدر من معمار دربار بود و از کارهایی که انجام داده بوده از کاخ مرمر بوده تا آخرین کارش آرامگاه رضاشاه کبیر که در بعضی اوقات من و خودش میبونش در سر کارهای خودش و واقعا برای من یک خاطرات بسیار بسیار عالی بوده امیدوارم که همیشه سلامت و خوش و خورم باشید و سال بسیار بسیار خوبی رو شروع بکنید و امیدواریم که در خدمتتون بتونیم باشیم چه سعادتیه که در آستان نوروز ما چشممون به شما نازرین ها باز شده و بعد از سال سختی که گذروندیم این امید بخشه واقعا من میدونم که سال خوبی برای همه ایرانی ها خواهد بود منم چارده سال در خدمت بودم، خاطرات خوب دارم، در حال آرزوی خوشبختی و پایداری عشق شما دو نفر که از همه مهمتره. هرچی من تمام ما خوشحالیم که شماها رو نگاه میکنیم و میبینیم با عشقتون به تمام ایرونیا نیرو میدیم. امروز روز خیلی خیلی پرخاطره برای من و خانوادم هستش و سپاسگزارم از اینکه در برنامه ایمانجان شرکت کردید براتون آرزوی بهترین ها رو دارم با سلامتی کامل و نوروزتون پیروز واقعا امسال نوروز ما رو شما نورانی تر کردیم یک دنیا ما چکر پس از شما خیلی ممنون برای نازنینتون از طرف ما ببوسید so thank you so much on behalf of my family Mahin, Parvi, Sogol and all the persons around the world thank you for being an exemplary example of wonderful Iranians trying to make sure that you pass on the best of who we are and what we are to generations to come have a wonderful wonderful new year and we'll be in touch to produce the most incredible live performance for all the good that you want to make happen with of course Shahzadeh behind the drums thank you thank you for the office